Guys, I am really excited. We actually have a repeat guest on. She's a, one of my favorite homesteading blogs to follow, and that is Jill Winger from the Prairie Homestead. So Jill, welcome back to the Pioneering Today podcast. Oh my goodness. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be back. Yes, me too. Actually, it's really funny. I don't know if I've ever told you this or not before, but way back when, when I first started blogging, which was in, I think, November of 2011, I didn't even really know what blogs were when I first started. I was so infantile and blogs back then there were blogs, but it was kind of a newer thing still. I mean, I'll have to be honest, even the internet was a little bit new to me at that point. And I remember when I found your blog. And so yours was actually one of the first ones that I started to follow and probably from way back when, one of the only ones that I do still follow. So thank you. Now I know how much work goes into keeping up a website and a blog and all that. So thank you for all of your work and sharing with all of us. Yes. I remember your blog back in the day. I think when we had that barn hop link share, I think you posted to that. And I remember looking at your blog and the fact that you're here so many years later, just still crushing it is a testament to your determination. So I love that we're in this long haul together. Me too. And I think honestly, that is a trait of a homesteader is the determination to stick with it, even when things are hard. Because I don't care what it is. If you stick with something long enough, you are going to run into hard spots. But that's something I really have noticed about people with the homesteading in this lifestyle is you've got to have that grit and determination. And so I think that's a common trait amongst homesteaders. Amen. Yeah. And it takes you a long way, whether it's homesteading or business or whatever. It's just super important. Yeah, I agree. So one of the things I'm excited to talk with you about, because speaking of being a homestead, which includes for most of us, livestock to some degree, definitely gardening and fruit trees and putting up food for the whole year and then planning out our garden and seed starting. And of course, there's that daily thing where we have to eat, which I will confess, one of the reasons we do what we do is because I really like food and I like good food. Like I want it to taste like a million bucks and there's nothing that beats the flavor of homegrown and home raised. But when we're doing all of this, plus most of us day jobs, we're homeschooling kids. Sometimes we're doing both of those things. There's so many things in our modern life, which can be wonderful, but most of us aren't at home and our only thing that we're doing is preparing meals and doing everything from scratch like they did. We have the modern aspect of our lives with this homesteading aspect. And so I even struggle with this sometimes is getting our food on the table and not just any food on the table, but obviously doing the traditional foods and the from scratch cooking and all of that and fitting that in with the time that we have. Is that something that you feel like you struggle with at all? Oh man, absolutely. And even though I think both of us, we have this online presence and people might assume that we're in the kitchen all day wearing cute aprons and just like cooking up a storm 24-7. I know, at least for me, I'm home all day, yes, but I have a lot of other things going on. And we're running a business from home, we homeschool, there's always outside projects. And so kitchen time for me is still limited, just like it would be for someone who is working outside the home. And yeah, it's been a learning process. And a little bit of a juggling act over the years to figure out how to balance that all in. So that's a, a very common struggle for most of your listeners. Yeah, I think so. And same here. I do have to say, I do have some cute aprons I like to wear in the kitchen, but yeah, <laughs> it's not that romantic. I do what I have that in my mind's eye, like someday, just going to have all this time in the world to prepare and do all of the stuff that I want to meal-wise. But the reality of it, the day in and the day out, 
I mean, that's why I know it's a modern appliance, homesteader wise. I love my Instapot because I can grab my whole frozen chicken that we did raise and butcher ourselves out of the freezer hour before supper time because I didn't have the forethought to make sure it was thought out <laughs> in plenty of time and I could still get supper on the table. So I think it's a relief for a lot of people to hear that it is a struggle, but there are things and ways, and I'm sure you'll share with some of them with us too, Jill, over the time that I've used to implement so that for the majority of times, it is from scratch, home done food made from scratch that is on the table most of the nights. Absolutely. Yeah. There's ways to do it for sure. It can be done. Yeah. So what's your favorite ways or do you kind of have a method that you follow or that has just naturally came into the rhythm of how you get your guys' food and stuff on the table? I think it's been a process. And there's a couple things that I do that kind of set us up for success. And I kind of want to preface it by saying we're not perfect. And there are days when I'm like, get out the Costco organic tortilla chips. We're having nachos because I am out of energy to come up with something creative. But I'd say the majority of the days, get something on the table that's mostly homegrown from scratch and tastes decent. There's a couple little things I do just to help. So the first one is planning ahead. And that sounds obvious and cliche. And it really does make a difference though. I used to have dreams and goals of being this, but I'm not one of those moms and wives who is a extreme meal planner. (laughs) I used to see the eBooks for that and the courses on how to meal plan for 60 days. And I just never been able to do that because our life changes so quickly from day to day. Um, So I don't have a fancy menu plan and I don't have it perfectly mapped out seven days a week. But what I do do is try at the beginning of the week I have a planner. I roughly sketch out my suppers in that planner. So I just know what I need to defrost, what I need to think ahead with. And when I can do that, then the whole week goes more smoothly because I don't know about you, but like getting to three o'clock in the afternoon and there's nothing for supper and there's nothing defrosted, it makes me really grumpy really, really quick. Yeah, it definitely does. And that's so funny because I am the exact same way. I have visions of someday being that super organized person that has a month's worth of meal plans, like totally done out ahead of time with the shopping list that I need of the things that we're not growing or making ourselves on the homestead and all of that. But the reality is I have never been able to do that. And so I'm like you, I do almost the exact same thing. I try to have supper planned out for the next three or four nights. And I usually will focus on Sunday cooking a really big meal. Because usually Sunday afternoons, we come home from church and we try not to plan anything or go anywhere for that afternoon or the evening. So for instance, just this week, we smoked a whole chicken on Sunday. And so of course we had that for dinner with vegetables and sides and stuff. But then I've got all of this chicken meat that I can put into other meals throughout. It's the time of this recording, just so y'all know, this is on a Tuesday. And so I'll have enough of that chicken meat for tonight's dinner and probably Wednesday night. And so I can plan that and then I'll need to switch to something else is our main thing. And so I definitely do supper first and then I even plan it our meat. And for the most part, because we do raise all of our own meat, I do plan it around that as the protein source. And then I pull in my vegetables and our other sides and stuff around that. So I do about three to five days out max. And I find that really helpful. And it's the same thing. If I know, okay, I'm going to make this tonight. And even if it's just for the evening and the morning, say, okay, this is what we're going to have for dinner. Then my mind naturally starts prepping and I'll get things done. But if I have like no idea, yeah, 
three, four, or even five o'clock will hit. And I'm like, oh, we kind of need to eat something. What are we going to (laughs) do? Yes. It's just that little bit of thinking ahead. And I'm like you, I like to look in the fridge when I'm planning out or go to the freezer. So our freezers are in our barn. Last Sunday night, I walked down to the freezer and I'm like, what do I need to use up? And I came back with this armload of pork chops and different beef cuts. And I like dropped some in the snow on the way back. But I had this giant pile of meat. And then I just looked at my planner and just allocated, okay, this is for this day. And this is for this day. And then I was able to defrost. And it doesn't take long. It only takes like 10 minutes to think through what's in my fridge, what's in my freezer, what needs to be used up. But it takes so much mental stress off later in the week. Yeah, it does. And I'm going to assume, I'm going to take a wild guess here. This is probably true for you too. But for me is I don't do, like I said, we've covered an exact meal plan, but I do have a list of our favorite recipes or our favorite dishes. And I tend to pull through and rotate. And every now and then, you know, I'll go in and obviously I'll want to bring in something new because you do get tired of the same thing over and over again. But I think having some key dishes that you have the ingredients on hand pretty much all the time and you know your family likes. I have found that that just tends to work really well for us as just putting those back in a rotation. And then I also know how to cook them really well. And so once you know how to cook something really well, I feel like I can move through it really fast. Whereas when it's a new recipe, it takes me a lot longer to cook a brand new recipe for the first time as I'm kind of going through it. Yes. I'm the same way. I have a cult, the repertoire of the standbys. And for us, it's really basic. Tacos are in there, spaghetti's in there, roast and like a roast chicken. And when I am running out of ideas or I don't have anything in particular that needs to be used up, I know I can throw those on the table quickly. I always have ground beef. I always have roast in the freezer. I always have a jar of home canned tomato sauce from last summer. And that's something that my family likes. Those are surefire crowd pleasers. And it doesn't take a lot of mental energy if I am in a crunch or I do kind of get behind on something. Yeah, exactly. And then when it comes to putting in those new skills, because those are kind of like when I'm in my time-saving or regular routine life, but there's lots of things that I still want to learn how to do. Or over time, I've kind of mastered from when I first started cooking and getting married and doing all of this on my own and I wasn't at home. So when you're looking to master a new skill or some of those things that take longer time, do you just plan those out and do it on a specific day? So for example, when you're going to render lard? Do you just do it because you're like, oh goodness, I've got all of this fat. I don't have room in the freezer. Or how do you kind of go about putting those? There are things that take longer time when you're making cheese or we're doing these different old fashioned things. There's some time energy aspects that have to be done in there that you just really can't hurry up some of those processes. Right. I kind of do a mix, I think. And so sometimes it is an emergency. Today, for example, I realized I'm almost out of broth, which I usually have a giant stockpile. So I brought up some beef bones from the freezer and that's going in the instant pot as we speak. But more often than not, I kind of block out my calendar. And for me, usually like Friday afternoons or Saturday afternoons are a little bit slower. So I know if I do need to do a quick canning project or I want to try a new fermentation idea or some cheese, I usually try to put it into that time slot and kind of block it out. Yeah. I tend to go on a little bit of both of necessity. (laughs) Just like you like, oh, how is it I have one jar of broth left when normally it goes way back into the cupboard. And that is one of the things. 
so I already mentioned the Instapot. I promise this is not sponsored. I have no affiliation with the Instapot, but hey, if they're listening, I'd be your girl. (laughs) But I love to do my broth and the Instapot because it is so much faster than having my slow cooker go for 48 hours sometimes to get everything out. And it gels so good when I do it in the Instapot. And you only have to do it for like an hour. I feel like it speeds up the process so fast. I can't do quite a big as batch as I could in my slow cooker just because I need to probably get the bigger Instapot if I'm being honest. I have the six quart. But I love the gel I get on that thing. And it does make broth making so much faster. Yeah. And I think that brings up an important point. Don't be afraid to lean on those appliances or those conveniences if you need to. Just because I think sometimes in this homesteader mindset, we're like, we have to do it the hard way. And we got to remember that we're trying to live modern lives and live an old fashioned life. Whereas like Ma Ingalls didn't have to drive her kids to homeschool co-op on Thursdays. She just was home all day. So if there's nothing wrong with using an instant pot, using a food processor to chop onions or shred cheese, like the food is still homemade. It's still from scratch. And if you can use a little bit of electricity to get the job done, I'm all for that to make my life a little easier. Yeah, I am too. And I think you'll run into both frames of mind. I have some people who definitely, and if this is your goal, there is nothing wrong with that, who want to be completely off grid. You know, they don't want to use any electrical appliances and they want to do everything off grid. And I think if that is your dream and your goal, you go for it. But I don't think that if you're not doing those things, that that makes you any less of or not a real or true homesteader, however you want to phrase that. Because my grandparents came out to Washington State where I live in the early 1940s. They raised their kids through the Great Depression and on. And I'll actually list you. I have some podcast episodes. One, it's an interview with my dad who was raised during the Great Depression. And they lived completely off grid. I'm I'm talking outhouse, a hand pump. So they had a, a pump in the house so that they could pump water at the sink, but no electricity, no actual running water. It was just a pump and an outhouse and no refrigerator, none of that. And so they lived that. And even after the Great Depression ended, that didn't really change their lifestyle. They still lived that way for a number of years. And when they had the opportunity for electricity, they took it because that is a hard life. And so I'm with you. I don't think there is anything wrong with using electricity, especially when I look at it in the aspect is if I can make things as easy as possible on myself without losing integrity. For me, I should say, buying a condensed can of cream soup instead of making it myself, but using the electricity, then that means that I'm going to be able to do this long term. And that's kind of the goal for me because like anybody who's ever started a brand new health regimen, right? Day one, you're eating all of the vegetables and you're exercising and you're drinking all of your water. And two weeks later, you probably aren't still doing it or three or four months later, you're not doing it to the same level. And so for me, if I can keep doing this for decades and years, I mean, my whole life until the day I die, that's how I want to approach this to make it through the long term. So sorry, I just went on a total soapbox there. (laughs) I think that's really the key is set it up so it can becomes a part of your whole schedule in your life and your routine. And like you said, it's totally fine. Like if off grid is your dream, fabulous. I so admire that. Otherwise, make it so it's something you don't dread that it just flows into your life. And I think it's going to be a lot more long lasting. Yeah. And I don't know about you, but there are times, this is just the total honest podcast episode here. (laughs) 
<laughs> there are definitely times when I'll get stressed out. I'm like, oh my goodness, I need to do this. Oh, okay, I need to start the sourdough starter tonight so that it's ready to go in the morning. And then the bread trays, all of those different things. But when I get into actually doing it and not just letting that anticipation or dread, but when you actually start to do it, I find that there's something very grounding and I have this immense satisfaction at the end when it is done. And then I'm so glad that I did do it. And I don't get that when I go and buy it from the store. Now, don't get me wrong. There are things that we do buy from the store. In all honesty, I have a Costco membership and I use it frequently. But there's that satisfaction kind of emotional level that sounds kind of weird. But when I get done canning my food and I see it on the jars of the shelf, I can't hardly even put that feeling into words, like how amazing it is. Absolutely. And that to me, I mean, I love the health aspects and all of that, but just that satisfaction of creation. I think it's something we need drastically as humans. Like we really need that. And it fulfills that so well. Yeah, I completely agree. So talking about heritage food and kind of those traditional skills, I know we love them all. I get so excited talking about pretty much all of them, but do you have one that you're super excited about or one that kind of has a little bit of a, I hate to say favorite spot in your heart because that sounds so weird and cliche, but do you have one that's kind of like, oh my gosh, we just got to talk about this. And this is the one, if you're listening that you haven't done, like you got to do this. Yeah. I've gone through stages. I've had like the home dairy stage where I was obsessed with home dairy and I still do it. It's just not the current, I don't know, golden child. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Good word. Yeah. And I've had fermentation stages. I think right now I'm really in a Twitter patient with bread and I've gone through the bread stage before, but I don't know, like it just makes me feel so good when I make bread or sourdough bread or even just regular bread. And this is going to contradict what I said earlier about convenient appliances. I refuse to get a bread machine because I like the process of feeling the dough and kneading the dough and it's tactile. And it just calms me down. And so I think that's my current obsession at the moment is bread. Okay, that is really funny. I swear, you guys, we did not discuss any of this beforehand, but I am in the same place. Mine is definitely with sourdough, though. I fell back in love with sourdough this fall, and it is my pet project. Any and everything I'm trying to figure out how to make with sourdough. My family's new favorite thing is sourdough brownies. There is something with sourdough and chocolate. Oh my goodness. It's the best thing ever. And I'm with you. I don't have a bread machine. Way back when we were first married, I had a bread machine and I kept somehow losing the paddle that would need it. I got tired of replacing it and then it died and I never did bring it back. If you have a bread machine and you love it and it helps you to bake bread, you rock that thing. But I'm with you and I'm really getting excited doing the different shaping techniques with the artisan loaves and cooking them in the cast iron and the Dutch oven and the cast iron combo and just trying it's like an experimental thing and it is creative and it's so much fun. That's definitely where I'm at right now is with the sourdough. Yeah. When you pull it out of the oven and it's those those beautiful, like I made this. Heck yes. I made this. It's just like the craziest thing. It feels so good. It does. And then cutting into it, because depending on if I'm doing like a sourdough sandwich loaf or if I'm doing more the artisan loaf where you want, you want to hear the crust sing and I'm like measuring my ears. Okay. Does this loaf have bigger ears? Let's check this. I can't wait to chop into it after it's cool enough so I can see what the crumb texture looks like. Yeah, it's total geek out zone at my house when the bread comes out of the oven. Absolutely. (laughs) And if you guys haven't heard, because we are talking about our love of food here and making things from scratch and doing those 
old-fashioned heritage cooking skills. Jill, you have a book coming out. I do. Our very first cookbook is coming out April 2nd, and I am beside myself. I feel like I'm having my fourth child. (laughs) It is crazy the way that it feels about writing a book. I mean, we can do podcasts. I love podcasts. I'm a podcast junkie. I listen to so many podcasts and read articles and that type of thing, but it really does feel like part of your soul goes into the book and then you're bearing it to the world when it comes out. So I totally know what you mean. And I'm very excited for your book to come out. I can't wait. Thank you. Yeah, I'm excited. It's one of those, yeah, it feels very personal. There is a lot of heart and soul in this book. It was not written by a ghostwriter. It was not just thrown together from blog posts. It's me. There's a lot of Saturdays spent in a coffee shop pounding away at the keyboard. So it's kind of scary. Like when you bring something that's so personal to you to the public it's a little bit scarier. You're like, are they going to love it? Are they going to hate it? What are they going to say? I know you've experienced this many times as you've had many books published, but it's kind of this adrenaline ride and fear and everything all wrapped up into a bundle. Yeah, it is. And I have to say, I guess it's kind of like every time you have a kid, even though you know what to expect, once you actually get to the labor part or the delivery part, it still feels brand new again. You still have a lot of those same exact feelings. I know because I've gotten to see a little bit of sneak peeks, but your book and you've got some really fun bonuses, a lot of bonuses if people, when they purchase the book, they can get, tell people the details so that they can go check that out. Yeah. So just in case you're curious, we're calling it heritage cooking style recipes. It's called the Prairie Homestead Cookbook, but it's American comfort food, probably food that you already know and love, but it's made with a from scratch twist. So there's no processed cans, boxes, bags things like that in there. And we really season stuff well. So it's not your grandma's potluck type food where it's jello salad and cream soup casseroles. And we have a generous part in the back where it helps you learn how to grow your own ingredients and give some homestead inspiration. But you can get it at Amazon, Barnes and Noble, anywhere books are sold. And after you pre-order it or order it, if you go to www.homesteadcookbook.com and you input your email address, we have a giant bonus pack, ebooks, videos, a free sourdough starter, some free tea, all kinds of goodies. If you just input your information there, we'll send you access to that right away. So we're pretty excited about that. Yeah, that's really awesome. And guys, as you know, every episode I have full show notes with links to everything. So you'll be able to access that. You can go to melissaknorris.com forward slash one. Seven three, because this is episode number 173, and we will have a link to everything that Jill's referencing there. So if you need to hit the show notes that you can do that as well. So I know when we go into a cookbook, like they're all your favorites, but do you have any recipes that you're really excited for people to try or that you want to highlight? I've had a lot of people ask if this is a non-sourdough version, because some people don't have that starter going quite yet, but I have like this freeform artisan loaf of bread, speaking of bread again, that's in the cookbook. I've had lots of requests for that recipe. So it's finally available to the public. It'll be in there. There's a lot of fun ones. There is a butterscotch pudding, like from scratch recipe that was really fun to create. Oh, that's one of my dad's favorites. He loves butterscotch. So I know the copy of my book is on its way. That'll be one of the first ones that I make and I'll take down to him because he adores butterscotch. So that one's going to be fun. You already had me on that one now. I didn't realize that was in there. (laughs) It's one of my favorites. Yes. Our Saturday night pot roast has some good memories attached. And I just try to season everything really well because I feel like when I talk to home cooks, a lot of them kind of get stuck with herb seasonings, how much salt. 
So I really wanted to give solid guidance on that. So I'm hoping it'll give folks a lot of confidence in the kitchen. Yeah. One of the advice that I always give to people, especially if you're coming into cooking and making things from scratch and it's new to you and you're like, okay, I'm, I'm giving up these convenience items for health reasons, frugality reasons. Usually it's health reasons and some taste too, but it can kind of feel overwhelming. And so when you pick something to start with and just start making that, and then it becomes a normal part of your cooking routine and then add in some more, but getting those base skills, like you talk about like seasoning, which if you've cooked a lot from scratch, that might seem really basic to you. But honestly, if you're used to grabbing, and a lot of us are, I mean, I used to cook that way when we were first married. I cooked that way for years. You grab a packet of taco seasoning or salad dressing is a mix and even gravy mixes, like all these things in packets. I had like salt and pepper and probably garlic salt. That was my whole seasoning cabinet consisted of way back in the day. It's not that way now. I'm talking, my husband will be married 20 years this September. So I'm talking 20 years ago, but you're right. Something so basic as knowing how do you season food then so that it tastes similar or hopefully even better than a lot of those packaging things. If you've never done that before, it can actually be kind of a difficult thing. It can. I don't know about you, but when I first started learning how to cook, because I didn't really care about cooking until I got married, my food did not taste very good. You can ask Christian, my husband, it was not awesome. You have to start somewhere, but I did not understand browning or sauteing onions or adding herbs. And so it's not hard. And it just takes a few rounds of trial and error. But to have someone walk you through it can really speed up the process. Oh, yeah. Amen. And I have to say, like, (laughs) I'm laughing at this because my husband is so funny. He is, and I mean this in a good way most of the time. Sometimes, I'll be honest, it really irritates me. But he's like my worst critic when it comes to my food because if a recipe doesn't taste good, he will just flat out tell me. Now, not in a mean way, but he's not going to sugarcoat it if he's like, "Eh, could you, you know, whatever. But on the other hand, it's been really good because then when he tells me like, oh, you got it, I know he's not just playing nice, that it's really good. And so for years, he has been the one that cooks steak. And I know you talk about grass-fed meat and we raise our own grass-fed meat. I was actually really fortunate growing up. My dad has always raised our own meat and we just didn't have the farmland. We had enough pasture but we didn't have the farmland and grain is not something you really grow here in the Pacific Northwest, not a ton of. And so our cattle weren't grain fed because one, we just couldn't afford it, (laughs) but we had grass and grass hay. And so we always had grass fed beef growing up. We just didn't know that it was cool back then like it is now, (laughs) but cooking it is different and too. And so steak wise, I did not want it to be anywhere even close to rare. I was like beyond well done. And so, of course, you're not going to get the tenderness and the flavor. And so my husband has actually been the one that does the most of the steak cooking in our house. And he's finally gotten me to realize that, okay, we can just brown and sear it. And it's okay if it's still a little bit pink in the center. And I have to agree with him, finally. He won't ever listen to this episode. I'll have to play this part for him. (laughs) He was right. But when it comes to even like you say, cooking your meat, and especially if you're transitioning to grass-fed, there's kind of a learning curve there. There really is. And I struggled. Like the roast that I made when we were first married, oh my word, it was horrifying. And I just couldn't figure it out. I couldn't figure it out. I don't think I was cooking them long enough was the problem, especially when we started butchering our steers those first few years. Like it was inedible. (laughs) (laughs) 
curve. But yeah, it's not hard. It just you got to have the right information. Yeah, I agree. It's one of those things, kind of like gardening and cooking, truly is some of the most simple things in the world, but it doesn't always feel easy. And sometimes it's just the smallest little changes. Like they don't seem like they're that big, but they can make a world of difference in the way that things taste and turn out. Yes, a huge difference. Absolutely. So I have to ask then, because we can't leave people hanging, right? So what is the secret? Is it just the cooking time on getting the roast from being like, ugh, can't eat this too? Okay, now it's pretty amazing. Yeah. So what I learned is searing, right? So you defrost the roast. So what I used to do is I took our grass-fed roast out of the freezer, plopped it in the crock pot, and let it cook for, I don't know, five or six hours on high. That is not a good idea. And so what I've learned is you got to let your meats defrost, which is why that planning step we talked about earlier is so key. You just got to let it defrost. That's all. Not active work there. And take your defrosted roast, sear it with salt, pepper, and then sear it in a little bit of lard or bacon grease or even butter. Get a nice brown crust and then stick it in your Dutch oven or a slow cooker or whatever with a little bit of liquid and some herbs and some Worcestershire sauce then let it cook low and slow all day and it will literally melt in your mouth. Yeah. Same thing is that long and slow is so key, especially with those grass-fed roasts. So thank you for sharing that. As you were just speaking, I'm like, you know, really, even though some of the processes like sourdough and fermentation and doing a lot of these traditional heritage type cooking things, it seems when you look at it, it's a lot of time. Some of the sourdough bread recipes that I do, I'm not kidding you, 24 to 48 hours later is when the bread actually comes out of the oven, depending on the technique and the recipe that I'm making. But so much of that time is not me actively doing anything. It's like 10 minutes here, maybe five minutes there. It's really not a lot of hands-on time. And I, I think that people don't realize that or they initially will look at something and be like, oh my goodness, that's way too involved. It's really not that involved. It's just it's just a waiting period in between the times where you are active. But the active time is really pretty small. Exactly. I was explaining how to do a home-cured ham the other day. And that sounds so intimidating and so crazy. And like, no way am I going to cure up my own ham. But really all it involved was putting the meat in a brine. The day I did my last one, we were on our way out to BBS. The kids were running around with half socks on, shoes on, trying to get all their stuff put together. And I was mixing up the brine. I plopped the meat in. We stuck it in the fridge for like, I don't know, eight or 10 days. And that was it. That was the extent of my fancy home cured ham. And it was like five minutes of active hands-on time. That's so doable. Yeah, it is. Definitely. There is that planning ahead part because you're like, okay, I need bread on this day. If I'm doing my 48-hour recipe, then that means I need to start the evening two days ahead of time at this time. So there's that little bit of pre-planning. But yeah, the actual work itself. So I'm glad that you said that because I think once people and even myself realize that, Melissa, you got like probably 15 minutes total, you're actually doing something. And then you get this wonderful homemade flavor that you can't touch from the store on the other end. Just do it, girl. (laughs) It's worth it. It's totally worth it. Well, Jill, thank you so much for coming on today's episode. And guys, we will have links to everything so that you can go and check that out. And thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's always so much fun.